Good morning, Village Church. Happy New Year. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village, and it's, as always, good to be with you. I'm by far the best part of what I believe is the most overrated holiday on our calendar. It is the um, New Year's Day is the Minnesota Vikings of our holidays. If you, if you know, you know. Spitting fire right out the gate. Um, this morning, we're wrapping up our Advent series, and we're gonna, we've been looking at Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. So our task for this morning is to look at the world after Christmas. After the baby has been born and the Savior has come, what next? What's different? And we're going to revolve ourselves, or we're going to ground ourselves in a passage that's probably really familiar to a lot of us. It's still considered part of Luke's infancy gospel, even though Jesus at this point is 12 years old. And it's the only biblical story that we have of Jesus as a child. And it's something that I think is typically really interesting to us. We wonder what Jesus would have been like as a kid. I think a lot of this revolves around us having genuinely a hard time imagining what a perfect child would look like. (laughs) Maybe the perfect child obeys you the first time. Maybe they eat everything on their plate and then ask you for more vegetables. Maybe they tell you when they had enough screen time. (laughs) Maybe they aren't instantly dying of thirst at just the mention of bedtime. I think the more we think about it, I think we all realize that the best thing we can do in imagining the perfect child is to imagine our child being Buddy the Elf. We go to sleep, he puts up all the decorations, and we wake up without having to do any work as a result. It's a level of perfection my kids can only aspire to. The imaginations of people over the course of history have supplied their own fictional stories of what Jesus was like as a child. There's a story about when Jesus was five years old and he was playing by a brook. And just by the word of his power, or the power of his word just gathers into little uh, clear pools of water, just just water that he can play with. And so he takes the water and he starts mixing it with the dirt and he makes clay. And with this clay, he starts to fashion sparrows. And a Jewish man sees this and he's upset because he's doing this on the Sabbath, right? So out of spite, Jesus takes those, those clay sparrows and throws them into the air and they turn into real things. Sounds like a, a cute story of Jesus. But then it gets dark real fast. Because a boy comes along, starts playing in the pools of water, and Jesus strikes him dead. And then his parents take issue with that. And then so Jesus strikes them blind for snitching. Right? Just sounds like an awesome episode of The Chosen. This is the Bible's only story about Jesus' youth, and it's not as sensational as that, but it's way more helpful. So we're going to let our text structure our time. We're going to look at the context and get a feel for what's going on, and then settle on the pronouncement that Jesus makes in verse 49, and then tease out the implications of that as they relate to the remainder of the passage, in hopes that we'll get a clearer picture of how Jesus changed the world and how it changes our life. And with that, let's get started in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So right from the start, we see Mary and Joseph settling into their regular rhythms of life. And we know this because it says that they went to Jerusalem every year for Passover. This was their habit. This was their normal. But in their normal, we see their piety. The Mosaic law required that Jewish men make the trip to Jerusalem for the feast, but only Jewish men. Women and children were not required to go. 
So the fact that Mary and potentially Jesus made the trip every year shows us that their family was not concerned with just meeting the minimum requirements of the Mosaic law. They weren't just barely doing enough to get by. And this is further illustrated at the beginning of verse 43, where Luke notes that they left after the feast had ended. The feast lasted for eight days, but travelers were only required to stay there for the first two. So at least on this occasion, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus stayed for all eight days. Again, they're going above and beyond what's required. They're a very pious Jewish family. They worship God as a family. And I don't want to make too much of this because I don't think this is the main point that Luke is trying to communicate by telling us these details. But I do think he's demonstrating to us the quality of parents that Mary and Joseph were. They didn't compartmentalize and separate their worship of God from their parenting. And I can just speak as kids ministry director here at the village. We have a ton of great volunteers that love to teach your kids about Jesus. And by God's grace, they're really, really good at doing it. But everything we do here on Sunday mornings is just supplemental to what you should be doing at home. Family worship is a good thing. The worship of God is something our kids should be invited into. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so what's, what's pictured here is a family where the worship of God and godly instruction is woven into everything that they do. It's as natural to the family as breathing. So as we open up this passage, we see Jesus' whole family appear to be involved in the religious rhythms. But this trip, this trip to Jerusalem would be different from the others. Let's pick it back up, verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, it's typical for families to make the trip to Jerusalem in caravans. It's safer, it's more efficient, and so this is what they're doing. They're traveling in large groups. And Jesus wasn't with Mary and Joseph when they left, so Mary and Joseph assumed that he was amongst all their friends and relatives somewhere else in the caravan. They probably didn't realize that he wasn't with them until all the families gathered together in in the evening to set up camp for the night. That was one day into their journey home. Once they realized that Jesus was missing, it took them another day to travel all the way back to Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to pick it up again in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So after two days of traveling, it still took a full one day to find Jesus in Jerusalem, meaning he was lost for three days total. And when they find him, he's sitting in the temple among the teachers engaged in dialogue. And the text gives us two responses to this scene with Jesus. The crowd was amazed at his understanding. Mary and Joseph were astonished. Now, amazed is typically the response of an audience when they see something supernatural. 
right? Hearing Jesus' questions and hearing his answers, the crowd is amazed at the supernatural gift that this young boy is displaying among the leaders of Israel. But while the crowds were amazed, the parents were astonished. They were shocked. This shock isn't because the deep wisdom that their son was speaking there. They were shocked at the apparent disregard they were seeing from Jesus. Look at how Mary responds to this in verse 48. Son, why have you treated us so? Now, almost all parents know this feeling to some extent. You know how I know? Because I've been in kids' classes for five years, and your kids tell us everything. (laughs) Right? They spill all the tea. You only thought those were deep, dark family secrets. Kids ministry volunteers are the most informed people at the village. And one Sunday I was in class and we were talking with the kids and the kids started yelling out and telling us about times that they got lost, right? One kid said, I got lost in our neighborhood while we were trick-or-treating. Another one got lost in the mall. And another kid started yelling, standing up, screaming about how he was lost for an hour in Disneyland by himself. We lost two of our kids in Yosemite last year. And we were only there for four days. This has happened to almost all of us. So we know the panic that, you're feel, that she's feeling when she's looking in a crowd and she cannot find her son. But what differentiates our situations from this situation is that in each of our cases, as badly as the parents want to find the child, the child wants to be found. But when Mary and Joseph find Jesus, he's not even trying to be found. And Mary expresses her feelings well when she says, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The word for great distress here is used only two other places in Luke's gospel. And both times they're used in reference to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's used to describe the anguish the rich man felt in hell. So Mary is accusing Jesus of putting her and Joseph through hell, trying to find him. See, in her mind, Jesus is the problem. That's what was so astonishing to them. How could he be so inconsiderate? And I think we can look at this and ask the same question. But all of that is set up. For what comes next. Verse 49. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is the climactic pronouncement of the entire passage. There are a couple of things here though that we need to see in order to grasp the gravity of it. First, Jesus describes God's relation to him as a father. He's claiming a unique, intimate, personal, family relationship with God the Father. God is his father. And because God is his father, he must be in his father's house, the temple. Now, in some of your Bibles, it could read, I must be about my father's business. In some of your Bibles, the word house might be italicized. And the reason for the variation here is that the phrase was left open-ended. It literally translates to, I must be about the blank of my father. So from the context, translators assume that the right word for the blank was house, and they supplied it. But Luke knows what the word for house is, and he chose not to write it. And I think the reason this phrase is left open is because Jesus is saying more than just he needs to be in the temple. 
He's saying that he must be about all the things that his father is about. And the reason I think that is because Jesus is introducing a formula for a way of speaking that he'll return to over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. It all revolves around the word must. Each time it's used, it's said in relation to something that Jesus must do as a part of God's plan of redemption. Pastor David talked about this a couple weeks ago. Here, the word must speaks of compulsion. So when Jesus says he must be in his father's house or he must be about his father's things, he's saying he's compelled to do it because it's a necessary part of God's plan to save us. And so there's this correction that's taking place where Jesus is correcting the way Mary is reading the situation. Look at how he responds. Mary says to him, your father and I have been searching. To which Jesus responds, I must be in my father's house. And this is the fundamental cause of the disconnect between Jesus and Mary. Mary was seeing Jesus as an irresponsible, disobedient, inconsiderate human child. And Jesus' response to this reframes the entire scene. This isn't a story about a wily young Jesus being hard to handle. It's a story about the unwavering commitment of our Savior, the Son of God, to his Father's plan to save us. At 12 years old, Jesus knew who he was and what he was sent to do. And that's what makes the next three verses so incredibly surprising. Let's read them. Verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and, was, Nazareth and was submitted to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So after showing us that Jesus is totally dedicated to the will of the Father, he leaves the temple and submits to his parents. This is unexpected. It's unexpected because you would have thought that Jesus would have just stayed in the temple. He said he must be in his father's house. He must be about his father's business. So what sense does it make for Jesus to, to leave and go home with his parents? Is Jesus forsaking his father's will when he leaves the temple and submits to his parents? No. Just as it was the Father's will for him to be in the temple, it was the Father's will for him to leave. Because Jesus always did everything that was the will of God. That's what he says in John chapter 5, verse 19. He says, so, so it says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Everything Jesus does aligns with the will of his Father, whether he's inside the temple or out. Now keep that in mind, because the next time we see Jesus in Luke 3, he's 30 years old. Meaning that verses 50 to 52 span 18 years of Jesus' life. 18 years of life where Jesus is still compelled to do all the Father requires him to do. 18 years of life characterized by growth and stature, wisdom, and favor. He grew physically, he grew mentally, and because of his continued perfect obedience, he grew in favor with his Father. Now let's, let's be clear, right? Jesus isn't growing into being fully God, right? He didn't have to go through God's version of puberty, 
right? He was always God, 100% God. Even as a baby in the manger, he was perfectly and completely God. This is incredible because Jesus is the ideal prototype of what it means to be human. Yet in Jesus' humanity, he grows. In his perfection, he develops. Showing us that growth and stature and wisdom and in favor is very much part of what it means to be human. During a quiet, presumably normal, maybe even mundane 18 years, Jesus grew. And the Bible is clear that as God's people, we should be growing in much the same ways Jesus did. That's what's said in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We know that we should be growing. The Bible calls this sanctification. The fourth through sixth grade class calls this Jesusification. Because they know it's the process in which we are made to look more, more like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus. So they call this being Jesusified. We got some young theologians back there. We know we should be growing and, and, and reading about how Jesus grew is a reminder that our growth typically doesn't come in bursts of dramatic events. It happens primarily in the dullness of everyday life. And this stood out to me because I don't think we like everyday life. Our culture loves Christmas. In November and December, it's everywhere, and we just ride the wave of excitement. But after Christmas, there's this really steep drop-off. The decorations come down. The fake trees are folded up and put back, back in their boxes. The real trees are dragged out to the curb with the rest of the garbage. Christmas movies are not seen or spoken of until next year. It's weird to watch It's a Wonderful Life in March. No one is doing that. Christmas has a very narrow window of time to actually matter, and then we drop it and it moves on. And on the heels of Christmas comes this letdown. And they call it the post-holiday blues. It's a feeling of emptiness or sadness that follows Christmas. And a lot of experts look at this and attribute these feelings to the fact that during, Christ, during the Christmas season, we put all the parts of our lives that we don't like on pause. We take time off from work. We're off from school. Normal routines are exchanged for meaningful family traditions. We pause all the daily things that concern us and we just medicate ourselves with hot chocolate and Mariah Carey. <laughs> but the reality is that we can't put these things on pause forever. And then the thought of going back to normal, mundane, everyday makes us sad. Our world after Christmas comes flooding back and we go back to grinding out our days, fixing our eyes on the next event on our calendars that can provide us a brief relief from the normal. The more I think about it, the more I think we don't like normal days. I don't think we like the monotony of after Christmas. Because I don't think we, we, we really see how the realities that we celebrate during Christmas impact the rest of the year. This brings into focus an element of Christmas in the incarnation that I want to steepen for a bit. 
Jesus came into our world as a baby. That means he lived a full life and was subjected to everything we were. Not only the dramatic events of pain and sorrow, joy and laughter, but also the ordinary moments of everyday life. And he was faithful in and through them all. I really enjoy Christmas and Advent. The Christmas Eve services here at the village are always a highlight of our family's year. But we can place so much importance on these big moments that we forget that there's value in the small moments in between. Significant things can happen over the course of many insignificant moments. And this is a timely reminder given that it's New Year's Day. The time of the year where we tend to think about all the resolutions we want to make, about all the things that we want to change. This passage is encouraging us to see the value in the normal rhythms of our normal days. What you do in the normal day is shaping who you are. And when I was thinking about this, I came to the conclusion that I don't think anyone decides to waste their life pursuing the wrong things. I just think they decide that they're okay wasting, with wasting a single day, and they make that decision over and over and over again. So much of our lives can be lost if we wait for big events in life to do something significant. I don't, want to, I don't want us to be so caught up in waiting for life's big things that we lose sight of the little things in between. There's incredible value in the small things you choose today and tonight and tomorrow and next week. Most of our days are normal, so maybe we should consider just starting to make some really small changes to our everyday rhythms and letting them accumulate over the time. It's asking ourselves the question, what things can I do during the course of my ordinary day that will help orient my life towards God? We're starting the Bible reading plan, and we invite you to participate with that. Maybe it's five small minutes of bedtime routines with your kids where you pray over them and bless them. We're spending five minutes of every day in prayer. Small things turn into big ones when they're done every day. At this, this moment on Christmas Day when my family was in the car, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw my four-year-old son sitting in the back seat. And he was sitting there, and he was wearing what he calls his new, new shoes. He had a Sonic the uh, the Hedgehog watch on his wrist, and he had a hat on his head. And he'd gotten so tall, his feet were dangling while he was in the car seat in a way that I'd never noticed before. And I turned, and I looked at my wife and said, he's not a baby anymore. Because that's how growth tends to work, right? At times, so slow that we don't realize that it's happening at all. A couple of weeks ago, uh, during our family devotions, I asked that same four-year-old, I said, Noah, who was the promised son that the people were waiting for? And he sat in silence for a second and said, the snake crusher. Because in the book we use for our family devotions, it teaches the kids that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made in the Garden of Eden that he would send a savior to crush the head of the serpent. So now, Noah now knows Jesus as the snake crusher. Now that answer was seven months in the making. Now in retrospect, those uneventful Saturday mornings at the table don't seem so uneventful. 
There's significance in the ordinary. There's importance in the mundane. Now, this isn't new. Many of you have your New Year's resolutions and commitments, and some of you guys are machines, too. You have spreadsheets with all of your goals for 2023 with formulas built in so you can track your completion percentage. And diagrams and PowerPoints and habit trackers, all in your Lisa Frank Trapper Keeper. That just showed me who everyone is that grew up in the 90s. You're ready to crush 2023, and I love it, and I respect it. But for some of this, this the talk like this stirs up some angst. Because we've, we've tried establishing new rhythms, we've tried establishing new habits, and we know how it all ends up. Disappointment, discouragement, despair, shame, frustration, quit. There's, this is another reason Jesus' faithfulness in the ordinary is so encouraging to us. We spend a lot of time talking about how Jesus died for us, and, and, and rightfully so. We can never overemphasize the cross. Yes, Jesus died for us, but he also lived for us. And one of the things that he was doing during these quiet 30 years leading up to his three-year ministry was fulfilling all of the requirements of the law. Now, this is critical for a few different reasons. But I want to focus on something that's going to be very familiar to the four through six readers in this, in this room. In class, we talk about how Jesus died to take away our sin. And that's good news, and it's true. But those kids will tell you that that's only half of what happened. Yes, our faith in Jesus took away our sin so that we would not be punished, but he also gave me that perfect righteousness that he earned so that I would be accepted. The biblical picture with this is Jesus clothing us in his own perfection. In the gospel, you are not just forgiven, we are made perfect, even though we aren't. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are sinners treated as if we live the perfect life of Christ. Now, this is huge because more often than not, the habits that we seek to build or the things that we want to change are rooted in some sort of sense of inadequacy we have in ourselves. I want to start family devotions because I'm not a good enough parent. I want to develop habits of reading my Bible because I'm not a good enough Christian. I want to be more helpful to my parents because I'm not, enough, I'm not a good enough son or daughter. I want to work harder because I'm not, good enough, I'm not a good enough employee. And so our habits are tied to our shortcomings. So when we fail at these habits, it confirms our shortcomings. And then comes the shame, and then comes the embarrassment, and then comes the discouragement, and then comes the paralysis. We're stuck with who we are. And that voice in our head says, that voice in our head says, see, I told you you weren't good enough. And the way Jesus rescues us from this is to show us that our failures are not the final say of who we are. I can fall short as a father, as an employee, as a son and a husband. I can fall short in all of these different ways and remember that my life isn't characterized by my everyday shortcomings. I can remember that by a single sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect all who are being made holy. And I can be okay with still being a work in progress because my value doesn't rest on my performance. And we can let the gospel of Jesus Christ drive away the feelings of shame because Jesus has already made me forever good enough. So when that, that new habit fails, 
when our normal day is wrought with shortcomings, we can remember that because Jesus lived the perfect life for us, the Father looks at us in the middle of our mess and says, Behold, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. And this brings us to our good news for this morning. Jesus was faithful to every part of the Father's plan to save us and enable us to be faithful in every part of our lives, even even the ordinary ones. Christmas and the realities of Christmas are big. And they drastically change the direction of the world and our lives. But after Jesus was born, he showed us the value and persistent obedience in the ordinary things of life. So when the holidays are over and we go back to the mundane this week, we can do the same. Not wasting opportunities to orient our lives toward God. And when we fall short, we confess, we repent, and remember that in Christ we're already perfect. We can lift our hands in gratitude and worship and then put them back to work in the Father's business. Sound good? Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your goodness. I thank you for all of the grace that you just rained down upon us in Christ. Lord, I pray for us. Today, I pray for our years. Most importantly, Father, I want to pray for our, our normal, ordinary day. Pray that we'd, you would help us to see value and significance in the things that you've given us. I pray that we wouldn't waste the time that you've allotted for us, Father. I pray that you would help us to, with diligence, put our hand to the plow and be about your work. I pray that by your spirit you would enable us to do these things with joy and with fervor and with zeal. Pray that even when we don't see the results that we're looking for, Father, we can trust you in the process because we know that everything you start, you complete. We look forward to the day we'll be standing in your presence, made perfectly perfect, enjoying your, your glory forever. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.